This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 612, and we welcome Dr. Alan Zelikoff for a discussion on covid prevention, treatment, vaccines, and lessons learned so far. So it's great to have Dr. Z back. He's joined us several times in the past, starting in 2008, discussing his book. Um, Let's see if we get the right title on that. Microbes, are we ready for the next plague? So he's been warning about us for this, about this for years, and look forward to talking to him in a little more detail today. Before we get started, Let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we're still here. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are... AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc. at TSI.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Victor Cafaro, Chesterfield, Virginia, who was first to identify the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation as the philanthropic foundation which believes that a carefully reasoned and systematic understanding of the forces of nature and society, when applied inventively and wisely, can lead to a better world for all. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, January 15, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI, Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. Name the medical scientists estimated to have saved the most lives worldwide in the 20th century. Back to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. Okay, so we've got Dr. Alan Zelikoff. He's a physician and a physicist who's had a career, a varied career, including clinical practice, teaching, and operations research. In the later roles, he was a senior scientist at the Center for National Security and Arms Control at Sandia National Labs from 1989 to 2003. 
Dr. Zelikov has traveled extensively in the countries of the former Soviet Union and has led joint research projects in epidemiology of infectious disease while establishing internet access at Russian and Kazakh biological laboratories. He's the author of numerous textbooks, chapters, and articles on the subject, and his book is called Microbes, Are We Ready for the Next Plague? It's available on Amazon. Welcome back, Dr. Zelikov. Good to be here. Thank you for having me again. It's great to have you. We were, you know, looking at, okay, we need to do a follow-up show on, on the COVID um, pandemic and where we're at today, and we thought, you know, let's get Dr. Zelikoff back on and see what he thinks about some of some topics like prevention, treatment, vaccines, and lessons learned. So let's start with the treatments. Where are we on treatments? It seems like we're, I don't know, if I, I think we're not making as much progress as maybe we would like. Well, you're right. Uh, treating viruses is, is a tough business because viruses are by definition, they're intracellular organisms, and it's really tough to get stuff into cells. Um, so the, the, the main uh, advances in treatment, which have come about as a result of really careful clinical trials in uh, intensive care units and somewhat in outpatient settings, come down to antiviral drugs, the remdesivir, steroids, at least for people who are moderately to severely ill, oxygen itself for people who are mildly ill, and the monoclonal antibodies uh, from convalescent plasma, that is from people who have recovered from the, uh, from the illness. So if you ask the question, let's break them up into two groups, not, not quite ready for the intensive care unit in the intensive care unit. Once people... Um, make it to the intensive care unit. So they're pretty sick and looking to maybe have a respirator tube um, started. Uh, the remdesivir and the steroids probably lower mortality by about 30%. So from kind of a 40% mortality down to the mid twenties. Right. It's a 30% difference if you do the arithmetic or thereabouts. And there hasn't been a great deal new since those items were clearly identified to be beneficial starting, oh, in the summer timeframe. Now, in terms of pre-intensive care unit or pre-hospitalization, and I know that the boundary gets a little squishy there, um, the, the monoclonal antibodies uh, which are expensive and a little bit problematic to administer because they have to be given intravenously, might make uh, a measurable difference in terms of preventing people uh, or, or obviating the need to be hospitalized by maybe a factor of two, maybe, maybe not quite that much. But we don't have a lot of data on that yet because they're expensive. And in the settings where you want, where you'd like to give them, for example, in nursing facilities, long-term care facilities, there's always a problem with administering intravenous medication in those settings. So I think you're correct to observe that our treatments have been pretty modest in terms of their efficacy, but there's nothing wrong with a 30% decrease in mortality in intensive care units. Is it, is it anywhere close to treating community-acquired pneumonia with penicillin? No. 
Um, and that's because viruses are much tougher to treat than bacteria are. Curious about um, supplemental oxygen. And, and you, you see a lot of news coverage about the fact that they're having trouble keeping up with oxygen supplies in some of the hardest hit areas. Um, is that as effective? I, I don't hear many people say, you know, with or without oxygen, X would happen. What, what would happen to these folks if they didn't have that supplemental oxygen? It's a great question. I don't think I don't think we have a lot of data on that. So what is known is that in people who are mildly to moderately symptomatic, there, how's that for a weasel word? Um, <laughs> that if you measure their oxygen saturation, you know, with one of those little finger clips, um, if if oxygen saturation is below normal, and you supplement with oxygen versus not supplementing with oxygen, that they do better. That is, they avoid hospitalization at a uh, greater likelihood than people who don't get oxygen. I don't know the data on that off the top of my head. And I think the reason that the data is hard to get is that it's just done now. And they're done in places, nursing facilities, uh, outpatient clinics, people get sent home on oxygen, where a lot of follow-up data just isn't gathered because it's just difficult to do. So it helps. Does it help a lot? It certainly helps measurably. Does it prevent everybody or even the vast majority of people from ending up in the hospital? I don't think it prevents the vast majority, but it certainly prevents the majority, meaning more than 50% from uh, going into the hospital. Now, there are all sorts of other factors, age, comorbid conditions, and teasing all of that out you know, with statistics requires a lot of data and a lot of time. And to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been done to just look at the isolated question of if you take into account everything else, comorbid conditions, et cetera, what difference does supplemental oxygen make? I don't think we know the answer, but it certainly is beneficial. Okay. Um, going back to the origination of the virus, um, Cliff had a question on, in your opinion, where do you think it, it originated? Did it come from a wet market, from bats or is it more likely that it came from a laboratory? Um, so I think the virus originated in almost certainly in bats. Um, now, was the virus obtained, put in a lab, and that, and for example, in one of the labs in Wuhan, China, and was there a laboratory accident? I'd be speculating. It'd be very hard for me to believe that someone de novo sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil and said, let's see here. We've got these uh, coronaviruses like MERS and the old SARS from the early 2000s. Let me manipulate it a little bit and see if I can make it more pathogenic. I, I just don't, that's hard. <laughs> and okay. I don't think that happened. I don't think this was done by intent. So it would surprise me if laboratories in China didn't have that virus in their collection, simply because that's what biologists do. They go out and they obtain viruses, generally stick them in a freezer with a view towards studying them in the future. But was there an intentional manipulation or heaven forbid, an intentional release of this virus? I just doubt that, um, but I can't, I can't go beyond speculating. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about some of the ways we've tried to prevent the uh, spread 
of the virus, and one is is lockdowns. And, and Cliff had a question on lockdowns and whether or not you felt that lockdowns had worked, um, and and should we continue with those types of uh, preventative me- measures? Well, there's no question that if you separate people and don't let them interact with each other, which is effectively what a lockdown does, that you decrease the spread of the virus. You know better than I do that lockdowns are just not sustainable. Um, and at least in this country, they, they don't appear to be sustainable. Now, there's also stuff short of lockdowns that clearly works. Masks and, and, and not gathering in large numbers and not traveling. How do we know this? We know this because to some extent, people are not interacting. They're traveling less, though certainly not traveling less enough. And what have we seen? We've seen that the influenza virus, which every other year would be peaking at this time, is hard to find. Um, I actually follow the uh, number of samples that are positive for influenza that come into all New Mexico laboratories. I'm out here in Albuquerque. So we have hundreds of samples a week, not thousands, but hundreds of samples a week and I have not seen a positive influenza isolate so far this year. Now, surely we're going to see it, but compared to every other year where influenza samples would be 10 to 20% of all samples that have been submitted, it's zero or maybe 1% out here in New Mexico. Well, why is that? Well, it's because people are socially distancing and wearing masks. Now, having said that, it appears to be the case that influenza is less transmissible, that is has a lower so-called reproductive ratio than the SARS-CoV-2 does, maybe by a factor of two or three. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the likelihood of finding it in the community. But there's no doubt that the simple public health measures that you've heard people drone on about endlessly, washing your hands, social distancing, masking, staying at home when you can, preferably not traveling. There's no doubt that works. Otherwise, we'd be seeing a lot of influence. In fact, I haven't even seen any cold virus samples, common garden variety cold virus samples that are positive. And we'd be expecting 10% of the, of the respiratory samples out here in New Mexico to be positive for those. I don't know the data for Pennsylvania, but I do look on the CDC website to see what the general spread of influenza is, and it's very low this year, doubtless due to the measures that have been in, in place, albeit imperfectly, for COVID. Interesting. All right, let me turn it over to the Z-Man and see if he's got a question for you. Uh, thanks, Joe. Um, I do. Um, and I think it, it goes back to this transmission issue. Um, you know, do you blame the American public for being angry and confused by both World Health Organization and CDC's reversals, and uh, now admission of airborne transmission for COVID? I I don't blame them. Um, I was confused. And I watched this stuff pretty darn carefully. Um, There there were a couple of messages early on, um, what do I mean by early on, March, that I just didn't understand. Um, For example, uh, yes, we know that this is a virus, we know it's transmissible, but there's There's no need to wear a mask. There's no evidence that it's spread 
airborne by aerosols as opposed to big droplets. I just don't understand where that, what's the word that I want, where that advice came from. Just made no sense um, at all. Now, I think there was, so how do we try to forgive this a little bit? Well, if you look at SARS-1 back in the 2003 timeframe, for whatever reason, that virus seems to have spread only by big droplets. And so since this was a closely related virus, maybe the big brains at the CDC said, well, it's going to behave like SARS-1. But, and here's the big but, we knew in January from papers that were coming out of China that there was every reason to believe that it was aerosol spread. Um, the, the, the literature was very clear on that. And you know that's what led me and one of my colleagues out here to institute effectively a lockdown in uh, seven large long-term care facilities here in Albuquerque based on the Chinese data. Um, and it was severe. I mean, it was a lockdown, no visitors, everybody wears a mask, testing when there weren't a lot of tests available, everybody who worked in those facilities, because they were obviously out in the community when they weren't working. And we were successful at keeping the virus completely out of seven facilities, zero cases among patients, 725, I think, patients in those seven facilities up until November. So lockdowns work, um, but they're, they're difficult. And there's no doubt that there was a lot of complaining about it, even in our nursing facilities here that I was involved with. So I can only imagine in the, in the larger community, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of anger over the mis mixed messages. Let's, let's move over to another interesting topic you hear a lot about. What is herd immunity and, and how do we, I, I, hopefully I think we want to reach that point. Um, how do we get there the quickest? Yeah, um, another, another subject that has just been painful to watch. So at some point when you're talking about medicine, you have to do a little bit of arithmetic. There's, <laughs> there's no way around it. Okay, so herd immunity is that percentage of a population that has to be immune to whatever the organism is, in this case, COVID, such that you don't get an exponential growth that is a doubling over a fixed period of time be it two weeks, two months, or two years. All right, so it is that threshold where you stop getting exponential growth. So can we be a little bit more precise about that? What, what is that number? Well, let's do a little bit of arithmetic. May I, may I go to the whiteboard for a second? Sure. Okay. John? All right, let, let me know if this doesn't work. All right. You're good. So herd immunity, which I'll abbreviate as HI, is equal to the following. It's 100 minus 100 divided by the reproductive ratio of the virus. For all the doctors out there, this requires long division. <laughs> okay. All right. So the reproductive ratio simply means, based on all things we know, how likely how many people can one person with the virus go on to infect? Is it two? Is it four? Is it 40? Okay, so let's do a couple of quick examples. For measles, which is probably the most communicable virus that we know of, 
the R value is somewhere around 40. One kid, and of course the kid has to be near other kids to do this, but think of daycare centers or elementary schools. One kid can go on to infect something like 40 people. So let's calculate the herd immunity for required for measles. In other words, what percentage of the population has to be immune such that over time, you don't get an exponential growth like this. Well, let's do the arithmetic. It's 100 minus 100 divided by 40. So that's 100 minus 2.5, if I did my long division correctly. And that's 97.5% of the population has to be immune. Now you know why it's so hard to get rid of measles. Wow. All right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. For COVID, the numbers that we thought in the spring and summertime was that the R value for COVID was about four. Let's do the very complicated arithmetic again. So the herd immunity for COVID is 100 minus 100 divided by four. And that's 100 minus 25 or 75%. And now you know why Tony Fauci was saying in the late summer, early fall, we need to va vaccinate 75% of people to stop the exponential rise. So what, what do I mean by stopping the exponential rise? Instead of it doing this, it does something like this. It flattens out. There's still transmission. It's just that it's not growing at an exponential rate where it doubles every two days, two weeks, or two months, whatever it happens to be. Now, one last thing, and then I'll stop with the complicated arithmetic. You've heard that the new variant for COVID from the United Kingdom, maybe South Africa, which, by the way, is everywhere. How could it not be here? Sure. That, that new COVID, so I'll call it COVID new, COVID N, has an R of six. That is 50% more transmissible. That's the number that you hear. So that means... The R goes from four to six. Now let's do the arithmetic. It's 100 minus 100 divided by six. So that's 100 minus about 16. And that's 84%. And now you know why Tony Fauci's been saying, well, we got to vaccinate maybe 85% of the population because this has taken place. Okay. Can I, can I ask a quick Go question ahead. there? Yeah. Is it that we have to vaccinate 84% or that the combination of those vaccinated and those that have already had the disease and then have their own antibodies developed needs to be 84%? You are correct. It's the latter. Okay. You're okay. exactly right. All right. Very okay. good. Cliff, let's turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Um, I guess in the United States, uh, you know, unless something happened lately, there's uh, three vaccines that are approved. And, you know, you're a physician. And I guess the question number one is, are you going to be vaccinated or have you been vaccinated uh, already? And is there one that you would prefer over the others? Or you think they're all pretty much similar? Here's we can tell they're, they're pretty much similar in terms of their efficacy. They're a little different in terms of the way they're formulated, and we can get into that if you want. So am I going to be vaccinated? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I can't 
think of any reason not to be vaccinated simply because the, the risk of acquiring COVID outweighs all of the potential risks that I'm aware of with the vaccine. Now, I understand that people are a little nervous about having genomic material squirted into them, but it's not as if that genomic material alters the recipient's own genomic material. We got a lot of experience with these vaccines in, in animal studies. They appear to be very, very safe. And um, I think across the three of them, there's the Pfizer vaccine, there's the Moderna vaccine, and then there's the AstraZeneca vaccine. The efficacy is about the same. The difference among them is that the latter, the AstraZeneca vaccine is a DNA vaccine rather than an RNA vaccine. Why is that important? Well, RNA falls apart very quickly. DNA is forever, as any forensic uh, investigator will tell you. You can look at DNA that's been on surfaces for months or years. Um, so the DNA vaccine is very stable. And what that means in a practical sense is it doesn't have to be kept cold. So the, the latter one, the AstraZeneca vaccine, is probably going to be the one that dominates in places where there is not the ability to keep things at, what is it, minus 70 degrees uh, C for the, for the Pfizer vaccine. The, um, the Moderna vaccine doesn't have to be kept quite that cold. And you may ask, well, why the heck is that? And the answer is that the, the RNA, which is about the same in the two vaccines, is packaged in a different uh, fatty globule, a lipid globule, to use the vernacular. And that lipid that, they, that the folks at um, Moderna have chosen is more stable at higher temperatures, so it doesn't have to be kept quite as cold. With respect to the vaccination rollout, what, what do you think, you know, that's something you kind of, you know, you've been involved with these types of things for years. And uh, why do you think it's gone so not as well as expected, let's say? Well, um, I'm going to try to avoid getting into politics. Um, let me say two things. First, Public health in the United States is um, largely overlooked. Its successes are such that when it's successful, nobody hears anything about it. Um, and so as time has gone on, funding uh, has clearly gone down, at least if you adjust for inflation for public health measures. And that includes the vaccination and uh, uh, distribution uh, infrastructure, um, for lack of a better word. So money's gone down. Second, I don't think most people realize that, that public health is a state responsibility. There is no federal department of public health. Everybody thinks it's the CDC. That's wrong. Public health devolves to the states. So when there is a need for a national distribution of anything, in the end, it ends up being administered by states and they vary in their ability to actually get stuff out into their communities, their hospital systems, their urgent care centers, their clinics, even pharmacies to get it distributed. And then the third thing, and I, personally, I believe this is the most important thing, is that the national leadership here, essentially the president, stayed up late at night trying to figure out how to fail with regard 
to managing this outbreak. So I believe they sat down with a piece of paper and they said, what can we do to make this worse? Oh, I know. We'll talk about the fact that it's just like the flu. Okay, that went by the boards. Then we'll talk about, well, there's no evidence that we need to use masks and I, the president, am certainly not gonna wear one. And so you can see how that eventually degrades people's enthusiasm for acting when the vaccine becomes available because now they're even thoughtless, uh, uh, critique, uh, uh, critiques of the vaccine. I mean, here's one example. Well, the vaccine has preservatives and preservatives are bad for you. There are no preservatives in these vaccines. There's no thimerosal, there's no formaldehyde, none of the things that we find in picogram quantities in the other vaccines. Yet the anti-vaxxers are out there complaining about it and they don't get much pushback from national leadership. The president ought to be saying, not only should you wear a mask, there's no risk to the vaccine that we know of, and there are no preservatives, if in particular you're whining about that silly objection. So those are the three components, lack of funding, a state meaning a balkanized responsibility, and no leadership from the top, save for folks like Fauci, who tried to give knowledge through the din that the president created. Let me, let's get one more quick one in before halftime here. Um, it's from a listener. It says, I believe mRNA triggers an immune response. What is the better natural, what is better, natural antibodies or the mRNA vaccine? Okay, great question. Short answer, we don't know. We're, we're about to find out. So there are many papers coming out about how long immunity lasts with natural infection takes a while to get this because you have to wait after people get a natural infection to, to know how long they have immunity, right? So the, the latest that I saw is that we know that antibodies in people who have been vaccinated are there for at least six months, save for about a half a percent of people who, for whatever reason, their antibodies wane. Now, before we go on, does that matter? Is it just about antibodies? No. Um, if there's one thing that I could scream about, it would be stop focusing on antibodies because the immune system is much more complicated than just antibodies. And for viruses in particular, it may be the case that the so-called cellular mediated immunity, which is different from antibodies that float around in the bloodstream, not attached to cells, may be more important. So the short answer to the question is we got to wait to get the data. But as far as antibodies are concerned, why do we focus on them? Because they're very easy to measure. Cell-mediated immunity is very hard to measure. It's easy to measure antibodies. We know that they're there for about six months, and that's about how long the vaccine has been in clinical trials, and we get about the same answer with regard to vaccines. That is, antibodies, a important but by no means the only part of the immune res response are also available uh, around for about six months. Now we just got to wait and we got to see how long they last. Biology is complicated. Um, it really is. <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder, I mean, how do you, how do you figure these things out with when you, and, and sometimes you're dealing with a combination of biology and chemistry and, and amen. 
Uh, it's brutal. All right, let's go to halftime. We want to thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Alan Zelikoff. We're talking COVID prevention, treatment, vaccines, and lessons learned so far. We'll be back in about 150 seconds with the second half of our show. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. Okay, we're back with Dr. Alan Zelikoff. Uh, doctor, I'm curious. I think you sort of answered this, but I just want to make sure I nail it down for the person that sent the question. Are there any possible long-term effects from this mRNA manipulation or mRNA vaccination? You mean adverse side effects? Is that what you're referring to? Yes, I think so. Lee? Um, the, the, the mRNA itself falls apart in less than a week, if it's that long. So here's the basic idea. And this is just high school biology. Um, if you're able to get the mRNA into a cell, and that's what these little lipid particles do, they fuse with the cell membrane because they're essentially like the cell membrane in this case, muscle cells, because that's where the injection is, is given into the muscle. The RNA gets into the muscle. 
And then if you remember from high school biology, the RNA gets, it's called translated into a set of amino acids and a set of amino acids means a protein. And then that protein or pieces of that protein pop up on the surface of the cell. Generally, in fact, almost always with another molecule that's always on the surface of the cell. So in less than a week, the mRNA is gone. What you've got on the surface of the cell now is pieces of the protein. In this case, the, the, the mRNA is chosen to generate the, the famous spike protein. Yep. And when it's stuck on the surface of the cell, that's called the presentation of the protein to the immune system. Then other cells recognize that there's a non-self protein, a foreign protein on the surface of the cell. And that is how the immune system uh, response starts to get generated. From there, much magic happens that we don't really understand. Um, and I, I think it'll be a long time before we fully understand it. But basically what you're trying to do here is to mimic exactly what happens when there's a naturally occurring virus infection in a cell. So what does that mean? A virus will fuse with the surface of a cell, a muscle cell, maybe a bronchial cell. The virus has RNA in it. That It's a very complete RNA representing all portions of the virus, not just the spike protein. And those proteins also partially get expressed on the surface of the cell and the immune system recognizes it. So unless you believe that a typical RNA virus infection leads to long-term risks, other than the, you know, the short-term illness, unless you believe there's some long-term effect, then there's no reason to believe that the mRNA, which is just a piece of the RNA of the virus that's in the vaccine, will cause any long-term effects. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, yes. do you worry, for example, when you get a cold, do you worry that it's going to result in your children not growing up to be a senator? <laughs> you don't. Okay. Well, no, I have other reasons for that. But. I, I, <laughs> Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, you know, one of the things that, that's happened publicly, I think especially in New York, is this prioritization question about who should be vaccinated, who should be vaccinated first. You know, should it be based on the vulnerability of people or should it be based on social justice issues? Uh, you know, could you comment on that, you know, from, an, from your perspective, uh, you know, either, either an ethical perspective or medical perspective? That's a hard question for me to answer. So I, I believe that the advisory committee that wrestled with this question tried to look at it from a public health standpoint. What do I mean by that? By minimizing the amount of spread in the community. Now that's a loaded term. So for example, are prisons part of the community? Well, yes, they are in the sense that people who work in prisons go out into the community and prisons 
I'm, and I'm picking it because I know it's a hot button issue. Prisons are crowded. And uh, let's just say there's a lot of irresponsible behavior that takes place in prisons. And so the likelihood of spread in those prisons and therefore infecting staff who then go out into the community is much higher than it is, um, let's say, that in, than in a classroom, um, especially a small classroom. So I, th I, I think that uh, everybody has their opinion about who should be vaccinated first. And I think that the decisions that were made were largely from the standpoint of trying to minimize spread in the community writ large, which includes getting at those populations that tend to generate lots of spread of the uh, virus and then infect other people who then go out into the community and infect people in the community. All right, now having said that, healthcare providers, not me, I don't see patients, not dermatologists and uh, pathologists, but physicians and nurse practitioners, and of course, nurses who are out there on the front lines absolutely have to be the first ones to be vaccinated because we don't have very many of them and they're getting sick and then they're out of action. And then of course the supply problem with regard to staffing becomes, uh, becomes even worse. So there are clearly select groups that have to be vaccinated first. And then finally, the most vulnerable. This sounds like another hot button issue. I find it to be an irritating uh, quantitative issue. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's isolate the most vulnerable so that we can give the vaccine to the people out in the community. Well, what the heck does that mean? 30% of us, including me, are among the vulnerable, either because of age or underlying conditions. So it's, it's a complicated mix. And I have to give a lot of credit to the advisory committee that came up with the uh, a protocol for prioritization. Is it perfect? Probably not. Could someone, somebody come up with something better? Good luck. I don't think anybody could have come up with anything better. Fair enough. Thank you. Let's turn a little to a little slightly different uh, topic, and that is going to be the new strains being found of this virus. I think maybe there's some misunderstanding about how important that can be and, and, and how important it might be at this point in time. Um, how important is it? I, I guess there's always new strains of these viruses. Is that correct? I mean, they don't always stay identically. Was that accurate? That's true, especially for RNA viruses. DNA viruses tend to be stable. Herpes hasn't changed in 10,000 years. Um, smallpox, it's not around anymore. That hasn't changed in 100,000 years. Uh, but uh, RNA viruses are born to mutate. So this gives me an opportunity to make a, an observation. Please do. When when you hear about a new phenomenon with regard to the virus, ask yourself a question. How could it possibly be otherwise? So we knew this was an RNA virus back in January when the Chinese published the sequence. We have lots of experience with other RNA viruses. Influenza, for example, it's different in other respects, but it's another RNA virus. Ask yourself, how could it possibly be the case 
that an RNA virus would not mutate. How could it possibly be the case that if you tend to spread people out, which is what social distancing and masking does, albeit imperfectly, how could it otherwise be the case that those mutant strains would not over time become more transmissible? When you spread people out, the only mutant strains that will survive will be the ones that are uh, more transmissible. So it was eminently predictable. I predicted it. Many other people did as well back in January that we were going to have an increase in transmiss transmissibility as a result of spreading people out. Now, does that mean we shouldn't spread people out? Of course not. When you spread people out, even though it may become more transmissible, unless people act stupidly like traveling during the holidays, you will over time decrease the number of people who become infected. Okay, so to get to your question, it's inevitable that RNA viruses will mutate. The overwhelming majority of mutations and anybody who has the virus has a vast swarm of mutants, the overwhelming majority of which fail because they can't survive due to whatever the mutation is. But every once in a while, there's going to be one that uh, has a new characteristic. One last point, another point that just drives me absolutely insane is the statement that, well, this is no more lethal than the previous virus or the previous flavor of the virus, the previous strain of the virus. Mm -hmm. Let me see here. It's infecting 50% more people. Mm -hmm. uh, are more people gonna die as a result of that? Yes, is it more lethal per person? No. Is it more lethal to the population at large? How could it be otherwise? So always ask yourself with this virus, how could it be otherwise? Just like back in January, when we heard reports of a transmissible virus in China, how could it be otherwise that it wasn't here? Right, right. What about these new strains? I've I wrestled with this question, but how, how far do they have to mutate before the current vaccinations are no longer effective on the new strain? And what are the chances that's going to happen? It seems almost inevitable. Okay, so short answer is we, have, we don't know, but here's the good news, I think. Okay, now I'm speculating a little bit and I'm, I'm, I'm basing this on what we know about other RNA viruses. So the immune system response includes antibodies, which are easy to measure. That's why people constantly talk about them. And so-called cell-mediated immunity, where individual cells, independent of antibodies, are detecting the presence of virus in other cells and killing those cells. Okay? So it's antibody-independent. The antibodies, we think, tend to be pretty specific, meaning if the spike protein changes, then antibodies that are induced by the current vaccine might emphasize, might not work as well, but cell-mediated immunity is getting at multiple portions of the spike protein. Okay. So I'm actually optimistic that the current vaccine will do fine. Now, is that 100% guarantee? With viruses, there are no guarantees. Excellent. Cliff, you want to take yeah. the next one? Yeah, personal question. You know, knowing what you know, um, do you take any supplements or 
you know, natural homeopathic, uh, you know, things in general or in particular, uh, you know, regarding COVID? I do. Uh, vitamin D. Um, I think the data is just overwhelming that vitamin D deficiency leads to a worse outcome if you get infected. And it might even lead to a greater likelihood that you get infected if you're exposed to the virus. I think the data is just overwhelming with regard to that. So will there ever be a randomized controlled trial where we take 10,000 people, let's say lawyers, and divide them into two groups where we deprive one group of vitamin D completely and the other group we give vitamin D to, send them out into the community, ask them to get infected and see who, get, who, who does worse? No. But the, the data that I have seen with regard to the strong association between vitamin D supplementation and decreased risk of the virus is just starting to get, it's just overwhelming. So how much vitamin D? We don't know. 2,000 units a day, 3,000, that sounds like a lot, it's not. I wouldn't do 10,000 units a day, but I'd probably take something more than 1,000 units a day. By the you way, know, what most, about most of us are vitamin D deficient because we tend to avoid the sun because of cancer risks and things like that. And the sun is the only way that, that the human body can produce its own vitamin D. And, and absent that, you either get it from diet, and there ain't much, uh, or you take it from supplementation. And that's why I take 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. Other than that, I don't do anything. Nothing else. Yes, you, know, so you don't do zinc or, or or anything else. Why don't you think they publicly would recommend? You know, people, you know, want to do something, and I think, you know, I think that's the primary reason that people wore masks. They wanted to do something, and you know, why wouldn't they tell them you know, just go out buy some vitamin D? And it, I just don't understand. You know, to me, if there's this data, I don't understand why. You know, it's not promoted. You know, it, you just don't hear about it. And I, I just think it's uh, it's almost malpractice not telling people when, you know, something like that. Could I think you're right. I'm, I'm, for what it's worth, Fauci has been asked about it. And he says, I take vitamin D. He also takes vitamin C. I don't know where he gets that from. But it's, okay. it's hard to hurt yourself with vitamin C. You can swallow mm -hmm. a bottle of vitamin C and most of it gets peed out. Not true with vitamin D, by the way. It is possible to, although it's hard it is possible to OD on vitamin D. So Fauci has said it and he, he takes vitamin D. I but I don't know why it's more widely advertised. I think I want to get into the final segment here, which is our lessons learned segment. And I know it's one that really, uh, you, you have a great deal of interest in. What are the most important lessons we've learned or that we are now learning as we go through this pandemic? We have no disease detection system in the United States. None. Anybody who tells you differently is making it up. So I would bet that your audience thinks that your doctor from time to time checks to see what reports there are out in the community of some new set of symptoms that might be an infectious disease. You would be entirely wrong. You would like to think that when somebody comes into an emergency room or an urgent care center with a illness that could be an infectious disease, you know, sudden onset, fever, muscle aches, you would like to think that that information goes to some central database and then is immediately distributed, you know, like with a map, like if you're looking at the weather, for example, 
um, to physicians and public health officials around the country. And you would be entirely wrong. So it's hard to understand after SARS, SARS-1, after Ebola, uh, that we still today in the 21st century have nothing close to a real-time disease detection system in the United States. And just one more thing. Most of the new viruses that infect the, the human population that we've identified in the past 30 years, two-thirds to three-quarters of them are known to be animal viruses. Now, maybe they've changed a little bit. Maybe it's because people are coming into contact with um, more animals as we humans grow in population and build houses out in the middle of nowhere. Who knows? But my point is that we don't have a veterinary disease surveillance system either, and they ought to be linked. So for 20 years, there's been a movement. It's called the One Health Movement. In my opinion, it's accomplished absolutely nothing, but it's got the right idea, which is that there should be a combined veterinary and medical easy reporting system so that when something funny takes place, public health officials know about it. Let me give you an example. Remember West Nile fever? Remember that vaguely? Okay. 1999, birds start falling out of the sky. Um, Probably the virus was introduced as a result of importing birds from the Middle East. We don't know for sure, but probably that's how it happened. Well, in any case, in New York, um, within 24 or 48 hours, two older folks, people my age, wound up showing up in two separate hospitals with onset of fever and mental status changes, delirium, meaning almost certainly an infection of the brain. Do you think that public health officials had any idea that those two folks were in hospitals, even though that's very unusual, extremely unusual for uh, uh, older adults to get brain infections? No. Had they known that, they would have known that those were the first manifestations of West Nile fever. So if there were a similar illness brewing right now in the midst of COVID, do you think there's a chance in hell that public health officials would be aware of it until it was so widespread that my mother would know about it because she read it on the front page of the newspaper? No chance. So that's the biggest lesson to me. And it's one that I've worked on for over 20 years and it just doesn't seem to get any traction because it's not very sexy to, to detect stuff that might turn out to be nothing. Uh, but it is it with the 2020 retrospectoscope. Hmm. Hey, I've got a quick question from a listener and it's one I wanted to ask earlier anyway. Um, the, your thoughts on the J&J one-shot vaccine versus the two-shot Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. I'm not sure what AstraZeneca is. That's one or two. And um, there are different types of vaccines as well. Any, any preference? I mean, if, if I was given the choice between the J&J, the AstraZeneca, the Moderna, and the Pfizer, would you have a preference? Well, that's a difference I don't know about. So I can't, can't give an answer. I just didn't know about that. Okay. Okay. Um, I, 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 have a fo- I have a follow-up, Joe. And actually, this was another one from a listener. Uh, that, that kind of makes sense because I had an opinion on it uh, you know, when it first happened. Um, you know, Alan, when the Pfizer vaccine first came out, uh, it, it's my understanding that 
about 50% of the, the virus is being held back to be the second dose for the first 50% of the, for the first people that receive that first 50%. It seemed to me that it would have been better to get, use all that, you know, use the whole first batch of virus and give it to people so that more people, you know, could be immunized. Is this something that's commonly done with, um, you know, two shot virus, uh, two shot vaccines? It, so sure, um, you know, the measles vaccine, I think there are three. I'm not a pediatrician. Um, I think it has to be given at least twice or three times. I can't remember. Um, so the issue here is, is adequacy of, of supply. And you don't want to get in a situation, and I don't know if we're going to end up in this situation, where lots of people got the first dose and either for logistic reasons or just simply availability of supply reasons, they don't get the second dose. Yikes. I don't know what we're going to do when that happens. And you can say, well, what the hell? If they're, if they're not getting the vaccine, the second dose within four weeks, it's okay to get it within six weeks. Well, maybe, but that's not the way the studies were done. And once again, biology is very complicated. So once you start twiddling over here with, well, we could do it at six weeks, who knows? what's what's going to happen so i i don't have an easy answer to your to your very good question um, my personal belief is that uh it's a shame that we have succeeded in what to date getting maybe 20 percent of the available supply into people's arms over the course of now close to a month um, that's just a shame uh, i noticed that the trump administration has uh, decided to reward states that are getting it out quicker by guaranteeing, whatever that word means, that they'll get enough for the second dose. So I don't have a, an easy answer here. My personal bias is to just get the damn vaccine into as many people as possible and then beat on the, beat on the companies, throw more money at them to produce more, more vaccine. That's my personal bias, but we'll see, won't we? Before we... Before we wrap this up, I got a question. I, I hope it's a quick one, but it may not be. Are there anything, is there anything that has surprised you about this whole COVID-19 situation? But the biggest thing that surprised me was how, how irresponsible the senior leadership in the Trump administration was. Hmm. Didn't expect can, that, huh? Can, can, you, can you think of, can you imagine... President Clinton saying, oh, it's silly to wear a mask. Now, I'm not picking on Democrats and Republicans. I, I, I think that, that, our, that our current president is uniquely irresponsible. That's what surprised me the most. And I guess the other thing that surprised me was that when he failed to, to do what was obvious, that there weren't more resignations from HHS uh, or from the CDC. I mean, why did, why did Redfield, for example, not loudly resign. Um, I, it, were it me, I think I would have just to make just to make a point. So that's what surprised me the most. It, it it seemed like the decisions that were made were designed to be as destructive as possible. You know, I, I guess I, I just have one follow up. Um, you know, I, I think we're all entitled to our opinions, and I think one of the questions I had was the 
you know, Dr. Fauci, because kind of the the public opinion, and I think the political opinions have kind of swung back and forth. And, you know, how would you grade him? You know, you've been a professor, you've had students and, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I, I'm not arguing with you about uh, the administration and what they could have done better. Uh, what could have uh, Dr. Fauci done better and what grade would you give him? Um, the reason I'm looking on my book is that the big fat book of internal medicine is edited by Dr. Fauci. Far be it from okay. me to critique him too much. So I give him a, an A minus. So why not an A? Uh, he said two very, very silly things. Masks aren't necessary. There's no need for anybody to be walking around with a mask. Yeah. Now, he would, if he were here, I think in his defense, he would say, I was worried about a run on masks. Well, people can sew masks and make them at home. Um, I think that's a weak excuse. And the other thing he said, and by the way, Dr. Burks did this too. Deborah Burks is the uh, coordinator, right. I think, for the coronavirus task force. I think she was. She right. was, you're yeah, right. Uh, they both said the following phrase. Models, infectious disease models, are only as good as the data you put, put into them. That's not wrong. That's precisely incorrect. Models tell you the information that you need to have. So for example, that little herd immunity equation that I showed you with the complicated arithmetic, that yes. comes out of mathematical models. So models may not give you the answer, but they tell you where you need to go to get the answer. And I just, as, as someone who did mathematical models for a while, I just found that to be inexplicably um, silly. Uh, so that's why I give him an A minus. Now, I, I realize that most physicians don't learn anything about mathematical models. And I wouldn't expect Tony Fauci, brilliant as he is, to know how to do one, but he can certainly listen to the experts who know, who know how to do one. So that's why I give him an A minus. I, I don't think I would have done as well as Tony Fauci, though. I think, by and large, um, he's, the, he's the reason that we are as, um, I was going to say successful, we're not successful. Uh, he kept things from getting a whole lot worse. And let me just say one last thing about him. President Trump is, is about to go, and I think arguably most, not all, people think that he's... Um, He's going with a lot of derision. Tony Fauci survived. He's still here. And that requires political savvy that I know I don't have. And I don't know that a lot of people would have had. Yes, sir. Hey, before we go, um, anything you'd like to add that we missed? Any final thoughts? And I, I want to mention to listeners, we had a question on PCR cycle thresholds, which is probably way too long to get into right now, but we can include it in the blog. Dr. Selikoff had a great answer for it. Okay. Uh, no, you've, you've emptied out my brain. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you so much. We really appreciate having you back again. You're, you're just, it's so nice to, that you're so generous with your time. And I know you had to do a lot of uh, reading and research to get ready for the show. And we really appreciate having you and look forward to having you back again in the future. And hopefully it'll be because we're announcing a new surveillance program or something as opposed to another virus so, um, or disease detection system is, is the right terminology. So thank thanks again. 
Dr. Alan Zelikoff, uh, great show. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest today. Thanks to the Z-Man. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. By the way, we've got Win White on next week. Uh, Win's down in the New Orleans area. He's been working on a lot of big projects in that area. He's also a really well-known guy in the building science and indoor air quality world. So looking forward to a great interview next Friday at noon when we come back to the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 